Good afternoon. It's uh, Friday the 22nd of May 2020, just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Column News. I'm your host, Mike Robinson. Joining me in the studio today, Patrick Henningsen from 21st Century Wire. Welcome to the programme, Patrick. Great to be with you, Mike. Uh, well, we're going to get straight on with vaccines, uh, Patrick, because uh, Boris Johnson and Bill and Melinda Gates uh, held a telephone call uh, late on Wednesday. Uh, and uh, Boris is joined by Kate Bingham, who's chair of the UK's vaccine task force. Uh, they apparently were discussing the UK's contribution to helping countries around the world tacking, tackle coronavirus uh, and the very important work of the Gates Foundation in this area. So that's good stuff. They both apparently expressed their hope that a viable vaccine would be found as soon as possible. And they also shared their commitment to the vital work of Gavi, uh, which is the Vaccine Alliance, and they were looking forward to the Global Vaccine Summit, uh, which, Patrick, will be a, a virtual summit. It's being held on the 4th of June. Uh, it's being hosted by the UK, but it's going to be a virtual summit. Um, so, uh, well, where, we, on Wednesday, I think it was, we were talking about, uh, about this, uh, the Oxford Vaccine Group and AstraZeneca uh, being given uh, £65.5 million pounds by uh, the UK government. Uh, to, to develop their vaccine. It's going to be uh, mass-produced by AstraZeneca, marketed by AstraZeneca. Uh, well, good news, Patrick. Uh, the US Biomedical Advanced Research uh, and Development Authority has given AstraZeneca a billion dollars uh, towards that. So £65 million doesn't seem very much by comparison, but a billion dollars has gone into this project. Uh, so the Oxford Vaccine Group uh, doing very well. So this crisis has been very good for... Uh, big Pharma, they're getting money directly from government uh, to do R&D and production uh, and as well from the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. So uh, Absolutely. So they're saying that the, the 400 million doses are going to come out of that. Uh, and so uh, that was uh, part of that partnership with Oxford. But now, we don't yet know if it's effective or not. We don't yet know if it's safe. None of that yet. Uh, no, abso absolutely they're, they're not. Li they're just projecting forward. Uh, absolutely. No, that's absolutely right. Now, Oxford, the Oxford Vaccine Group, uh, it's a bit unclear exactly whether uh, how much of this money went to the Oxford Vaccine Group itself. But, I mean, Oxford University gets a lot of money from the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation uh, and $12 uh, million uh, from 2019 going towards vaccine-specific research at Oxford. So I would imagine it's going to the Oxford Vaccine Group. Bill and Melinda Gates don't say that specifically. But that's part of a you know, couple of hundred million dollar uh, grant each year to, to Oxford University. So, uh, so plenty of money going in there. Well, we saw this with, Mike, after the war on terror. Uh, a lot of the grants and a lot of the money coming from government going to universities was for you know, Department of Homeland Security type applications, security, surveillance. Uh, data mining and things like this. This is all. This is where the money was basically. Mm -hmm. So now this is similar to a post 9/11 situation where all the institutions, if they want to get uh, research grants, well, if you're doing anything in this department, um, anything at all, you could probably submit and be successful in getting a grant. So this is a type of a gravy train of sorts. The same with the climate uh, research, Mike. Uh, right after the, uh, you know, cl the climate change movement was really bubbling in 2006 with Al Gore's film. That's where all the money was. Was anything related to climate change? You submit your grant, you get your money. That's what we're seeing here. Uh, absolutely. Uh, but uh, what's the reaction to it? Uh, certainly, you're choosing Romania here as an example. Well, this is just one story I wanted to highlight, just to give you one example of how one country uh, is reacting to the specter of mandatory vaccines. Mind you, uh, Romania is an EU country, and so there are experts who are urging Parliament uh, to adopt legislation to make vaccinations mandatory. An opinion survey was given. One out of three Romanians said they would not uh, take a vaccine, a coronavirus vaccine. So that's 33 percent. That's a large portion of the, of the country, but this falls a a larger trend, Mike. The results of the survey come up against the backdrop of growing visibility of an anti-vaccine movement in the country. So this is in the Balkans, this is in Eastern Europe. So you'll find a lot of these types of issues to do with social issues. You will see some similarities uh, between countries in Eastern Europe and the Balkans. Um, so there might, this might not be confined, what I'm saying is it might not be confined just to Romania. There might be a large uh, body of skepticism in populations 
right across Central and Eastern Europe with regards to vaccines. And I think a lot of it has to do, Mike, with the coronavirus crisis. I think people are realizing uh, in, in Albania, people also in Bulgaria, in these countries that I've spoken to people from these countries recently, and they're highly skeptical now mm. of the agenda that's been behind the sort of mass panic of the coronavirus. They, they were put on lockdown early, some of these countries, and it, it really, I think, awakened um, uh, political awareness uh, and the possibility that there might be more on the back end of this crisis uh, than governments were letting on at the beginning. Uh, yeah, and uh, I mean, it's, uh, you know, the specter of, of mandatory vaccination is something that's been uh, discussed uh, over the last number of weeks in the UK here. Uh, and in fact, I think it was uh, Wednesday that, or Tuesday perhaps, Gavin Williamson suggesting, uh, just throwing it out there, that maybe uh, a requirement to demonstrate vaccination in children would be necessary for them to access schools in the not too distant future. So, you know, th this was a throwaway comment from, from Williamson, I suspect. It's one of these comments that gets put out there to see what the reaction is in social media and so on, because they're tracking tracking trends on social media very, very carefully, as we've been highlighting over the last couple of weeks. Uh, and of course, you know, you get politicians making statements like that just to see what the what the lie of the land is amongst the population. And uh, I, I suspect that's what that was about. It's important to bring that up, Mike, because you see these comments made that seem to be out of sorts, but they're in, in many cases intentionally drifted out. Mm. They want to gauge the public reaction. So they have their data experts and they have the social media uh, consultants that go and look and crunch the data on that. Mm. And then see, then they come after that, Mike, with uh, uh, policy possibly. And they try the policy based on public reaction. Uh, absolutely. Uh, now, in the meantime, of course, as time goes on, more and more people speaking out about, uh, about coronavirus and, and its uh, potential lethality. Well, there's been a slew of uh, what we call serological studies here, uh, testing the serological prevalence or the antibody prevalence in the population. One such university that's done this is one of the top universities in the United States, Stanford University, has just completed uh, a round of serological studies. I think uh, in total, 12 locations, 12 different locations. Uh, this has been one of the lead researchers on this is Professor John Ioannidis uh, from Stanford University. And they're looking for the infection level of the population based on antibody tests. And so this is important here. Let's frame this now. The infection fatality rate. This is so important because this is what really policy is based on. Mm -hmm. This is what drove fear through the population early. Now, if you remember back in early March, this is what the World Health Organization was saying. They published a mortality rate of 3.2 to 3.4 percent. So a, a, a death rate, effectively, of 3.4 percent. Okay, so if you feed that into Neil Ferguson's Imperial College model or anything like this, you're going to get huge numbers of uh, predicted deaths. That's the point. Well, and indeed, and if you're if you're fitting that that percentage into, for example, the population of the United States, the number you get out is a scary number. It's in the millions. Yes. And even Donald Trump is still harping on this. So, and here's Imperial College, their modeling, which was very influential uh, in the government's decision in Britain to take its lockdown policy, assumed an infection fatality rate of of about one percent, point nine percent. Okay, that's that's where we were at in March. Okay, here's where we're at now. So both of those were basically wrong, completely bogus, okay, so totally over-exaggerated. Here's where we're at now, Mike. Estimates between 12 locations, 12 different regions, 0.02%, okay, that's 2 out of 10,000 people, uh, and then in another, the end of that band is 0.4%, so that's a, a range there. That's in the United States, so the lowest estimates came from Japan, 0.02%. 2 out of 10,000, and in northern France, 0.04%. The highest prevalence they had in terms of a raw figure looks like Geneva and uh, one uh, village in Germany uh, at uh, 0.28, but still well below the initial figures that were put out by WHO and Imperial College. So this is really important. And by the way, Stanford, uh, John Yunis has come up with major attacks from mainstream media, from people, because they didn't like the findings that Stanford mm -hmm. and some of these professors were, and statements that they were saying on uh, with uh, John, um, John Kirby's interviews with Journeyman Films, which got pulled down off of YouTube. Mm -hmm. John Yunis's film pulled down. Wachowski's films pulled down. Those interviews were taken down, censored by YouTube. 
they, the establishment did not like what they were saying, and all they were doing was ref reflecting the real data. Stanford's estimates, Mike, is not shocking, what we just shown there, and it's in the middle of all of the serological studies that have been done worldwide in the last month. So Stanford's like pretty much right in the middle of everybody from the, da the Danish studies to other American studies and other international studies. So it's not extreme, these findings. In fact, there's much lower ones from some other studies that have been done. So the, the bottom line here, Mike, is that COVID-19 is in within the same fatality range as the seasonal flu. It's in the same fatality range in, as the seasonal flu. And in some cases, a lower fatality rate, infection fatality rate, than the seasonal flu. Now think about that for a minute and then look at the lockdown policies that we're facing now. What is the justification for it? Okay, I can see they didn't have that information before, but they certainly have it now. Why are we continuing with lockdown policies and closing of schools and so forth? Uh, absolutely. Uh, and of course, uh, the results of lockdown policy, aside from the number of deaths that have come as a re direct result of the lockdown itself, the economic impact starting to be felt. So uh, here is uh, the tax income uh, just released by the Office for National Statistics. Uh, tax income, this is uh, PAYE income, uh, and we can see that it has absolutely collapsed uh, in April. Um, quite a spectacular drop from the uh, trend from the previous uh, uh, couple of years, several years. Uh, and uh, let's have a look at uh, VAT income. It's very, very similar. Of course, all the shops shut, but, but that doesn't explain it all because uh, they're still online. You can still purchase online. So, so this is a, a significant fall in, uh, in economic activity here. Um, and as a result, as many people reporting this morning, uh, a massive increase in public sector net borrowing, uh, excluding public sector banks. This is Office for National Statistics graph, and you can quite clearly see what the situation is there. So they've borrowed a record-breaking £62.1 billion pounds in April. This is the highest figure in a single month since records began in 1993. Uh, and uh, uh, it's £51.1 billion pounds more than the go government borrowed a year ago in April 2019. Um, so... Uh, this is a pretty significant uh, situation uh, and only likely to get worse as the furlough scheme has been extended and various other programs, including support, or, you know, other, other support programs have been, been extended. Um, well, yesterday then the uh, governor of the Bank of England was very excited. Here he is, Andrew Bailey, uh, paving the way for negative interest rates. Uh, and uh, he said that bank officials are going to considering all options. This is only a few weeks. Uh, from when he basically said that there was no way that the Bank of England was prepared to consider negative interest rates. Um, but it gets better uh, because the UK government, through the Debt Management Office, have decided that they want to uh, issue negative yield bonds, uh, which means if you get uh, some government bonds from the, uh, uh, from the Treasury now, uh, they are going to be uh, 0.03%. Uh, is the yield on those. That's the return on your investment. Uh, and really, they're doing this, uh, it seems, because they think that the Bank of England is going to uh, uh, increase its um, uh, quantitative easing program. So government, uh, Bank of England, of course, bar buying government bonds is a bond buyback scheme. Uh, they're going to uh, uh, get the Bank of England to, to put a lot of money uh, into the, uh, the, the government through, through this debt that they're increasing. And, and as you've reported before, Mike, and as uh, David Scott also has uh, shown on the program, how much money the United States government um, is, and the United States is dumping on the balance sheet, on the Federal Reserve's balance sheet, upwards of $10 trillion, and the cascading effect that's going to have going forward. And this brings us to the original point, Mike, about the uh, infection fatality rate, about Imperial College, that they, they went for the worst-case scenario. Mm -hmm. So now that we know that they're... Worst case scenario isn't actually valid. Uh, given the cost of lockdown, Mike, continue, it's compounding every day. Mm -hmm. That why why are we still pursuing a policy based on bad data, based on bad assumptions, uh, two or three months ago? Why are we still continuing to uh, drive the economy and society off the cliff? 
Well, frankly, if it's if it's purely a, a political decision, if it's purely that Boris Johnson at this point has backed himself into a corner politically and doesn't have the guts to reverse direction when he knows in his own mind that that's the right thing to do, then, you know, that man should be removed from his position as prime minister and shouldn't be in politics at any point in the future. And I, another question is, you know, in terms of the science advisors on SAGE, where were the experts, Mike, about the cost of an economic shutdown, mm -hmm. about the effects of unemployment, about what happens if you destroy the small business sector in your country, if you wipe it out over the course of two or three weeks or a month? What, what are, the, are going to be the ramifications for that? What are the other comorbidities that are going to come in the population and people who aren't, weren't be going to get treated for cancer and heart heart treatments and so forth on the NHS side. All of that conversation, I didn't see any of the science for that No. in the run-up to the lockdown. All we saw were uh, graphs and curves and sombreros and camelback humps, okay? That's all we saw. But in fact, the politicians have very conveniently offloaded, scapegoated all, some of the blame indirectly on the scientists but they themselves have the final decision. They should, as politicians, as political leaders, be able to make a decision of whether the measures taken are correct or uh, proportionate uh, and are, uh, in fact, measured uh, according to the, to the scale of the potential threat and, and consider all the people that are going to be affected by it, not just people who are going to catch and die of coronavirus. Um, and, uh, you know, ultimately, uh, the policies that are being pursued here uh, under the name of coronavirus and lockdown uh, draw, uh, have major parallels to the same policies that uh, government's been attempting to pursue for a number of years now under the guise of uh, climate change. Uh, and, uh, and, of course, the other major policy, the other direction that we're heading in is this so-called fourth industrial revolution that uh, pol politicians have been talking about for quite a number of years now. Uh, well, here's Jack Dorsey, um, who, uh, of course, is the chief executive of Twitter and also of uh, the payment company Square. Uh, he's giving money to this organization, Humanity Forward. Uh, now, Humanity Forward, Patrick, uh, this is uh, uh, a group launched by the former Democratic presidential candidate, Andrew Yang. Uh, I don't know that name off the top of my head. Andrew Yang ran for president uh, on the Democratic uh, side during the primaries, Mike, and his thing was universal basic income. Everybody needs to get a thousand bucks a month, no matter who they are. Everyone's going to get their grant, and, and that'll take pressure off this idea of this transition into the sort of fourth industrial revolution economy. And of course, the millennials loved it, Mike. They could stay at home, play computer games all day, much like they're doing right now on government uh, furlough and government assistance. So that's exactly what uh, Dorsey's money is going to be used for, universal basic income. They're going to give uh, £250. This is a pilot scheme to 200 to 20,000 people who've lost their jobs. Uh, they're just going to see how that, how that goes. Uh, but uh, Dorsey absolutely sponsoring. Uh, heading in that direction. 250 quid a month? Uh, dollars. Dollars. It's, it's a pilot scheme, so okay. don't get, the, you know, it's, it's obviously not, it's not realistic in a sense, but, but uh, it is a pilot scheme. So in America, that's burgers and fries for right. a month. For a month, yes. Very good. Yeah. Well done, Jack. Um, now, uh, what about mainstream media? What have they been up to? Well, we, we know how well, what a great job they've been doing covering uh, the coronavirus uh, we've been criticizing them for many, many years for the, the fact that they haven't been doing much of a job. But the, the reason that, uh, that they deserve particular criticism at the moment, of course, is because they've been re receiving so much money direct from government uh, in order to push uh, the government line on, uh, on coronavirus. So what's that done to, uh, to newspaper circulation? Well, this is ABC. Uh, and ABC is uh, the organization that gathers the, the circulation statistics for the newspapers. Uh, and uh, so what they have uh, published uh, yesterday uh, was, uh, was this. Uh, this is just some examples uh, of the circulation rates, the falls in circulation uh, over the course of April. Uh, the Metro uh, suffering pretty badly there, 70% down. Now, it's a free newspaper. People normally pick it up uh, in uh, public transport systems and so on, so that explains that. But the Daily Mail down 70%, Evening Standard. Uh, 40% Daily Mirror down 18%, Express down 19%, Financial Times down 39%, and the I newspaper down 38%. Um, well, apparently, you'll notice that there's no uh, um, News International newspapers on there. Uh, 
Uh, well, the reason for that is very simple. Apparently, they don't like these statistics uh, being public. Uh, so ABC has decided that uh, there's going to be new reporting options for news brand statistics now, and they're not going to make those public anymore. This is going to be internal to the industry uh, and to agencies, to ad agencies only. Uh, and uh, so no more uh, understanding or knowledge of what uh, the circulation figures are. So what this effectively does, Patrick, actually, is that uh, these circulation figures has, have been uh, part of the competition between newspapers. It's, it's a healthy competition. Who's, you know, who's going to get the biggest uh, circulation? It's sort of a ratings measure. Um, and uh, so by removing this, uh, they've effectively removed the competition between the various mainstream outlets. It's effectively operating. It has been for some time, Patrick, but this takes another step. It's effectively operating as a cartel rather than as any kind of uh, open free market, uh, comp you know, free competition. So market. that shatters any expectations that you're going to see any independent editorial policies or, you know, challenging the government line consistently. And this goes back to the previous story that we reported last week, Mike, about how the media, the mainstream media is becoming uh, dependent on government for buying advertising. So they're like their biggest advertising partner. One of their biggest is now government. Uh, and so this latest ABC announcement, Mike, added with that of the government buying up ad space in mainstream media, especially during this crisis, is quite disturbing. Well, absolutely, and it's something that we've been warning about for about two, year, two years, because, of course, when the Cairn Cross review into the, the, uh, the, the future sustainability of the press was launched, uh, the British government was expressing uh, the need to somehow support and underpin and provide foundations for uh, the free press, because without a free press, of course, they have no narrative. I have a solution, by the way, for the print media. Um, if we used to we used to take newspapers and roll them into logs back when I was a kid, and that would help to heat the house in the winter. True story. So maybe if we houses in London maybe move to wood burning stoves, little wood burning uh, units. No, no, they're they're banned. Oh, they're banned. Yeah, okay. they're, they're being banned under the latest climate change uh, regulations. Oh, so that won't work. So that won't work. Sorry, sorry. We'll think again. We'll, uh, we'll think about that. Yeah. Something. Okay. Well, look. Let's move on to schools, Patrick. Well, this is a big story. This is uh, dominating a lot of the headlines, uh, and this is really the result of UK teachers' union strikes over safety fears. So this is holding up the opening of schools in the UK because teachers in the UK, or at least the union, uh, not necessarily all teachers, uh, don't believe it's safe. They, they want the government to guarantee it's going to be safe from coronavirus when they go back to school. And here's the, uh, the mail pointed out just a couple of days ago, 22 European countries on the continent are allowing pupils back to class. In fact, some have already been in class now for over for about a month. Uh, and so and there's no evidence that this is going to be harmful uh, to children and teachers. And, of course, the data backs this up, Mike. The uh, evidence with regards to the infection rate uh, amongst children or most children are asymptomatic if they do catch the coronavirus. And there's very little evidence of children spreading the disease uh, to each other or adults. So that there's nothing wrong with the children, as we talked mm -hmm. about last week. So the problem really is with the teachers, it's with the adults. And so, and by the way, most teachers, uh, females under 50, they don't fall into the high-risk category of COVID-19 either. So, you know, I think Europe has worked out that there's no problem with schools. Sweden didn't have a genocide, uh, and they left their schools open most of their schools, the younger grades anyway, for the duration of this crisis, and they haven't had an apocalypse. So uh, I think the problem is, in the UK, seems to be a bubble. There's a small little conversation going on here about COVID that's not really happening elsewhere, and it's almost like this kind of echo chamber within the UK that uh, COVID is more infectious here, or, or in America is the same similar situation. That it doesn't. The rules that apply to Sweden in terms of physics and science don't apply to the UK and the US. So, so the uh, last week, the the BMA, the British Medical Association, issued a letter to, uh, to supporting the teachers' union. Uh, we weren't, we didn't show the letter on screen here, but um, they basically said that uh, there is a risk there, and we they they sort of do respect the teachers' rights to. Uh, and there's so much is unknown about the virus still, they're saying. Mm -hmm. Well, this isn't actually true, but here's uh, Dr. Peter English. He is the chair of Public Health Medicine Committee at the BMA, 
and he, this is what he's saying. This is just one paragraph we've lifted out of his statement. Equally, one of the, of the first reports on the epidemiology of the virus to come out of China suggested that children were just as likely to be infected as adults. Uh, this was at a time when the R0 value in the region had been reduced by 0.4 uh, by social distancing and contact tracing, and is therefore similar to the current situation in London. Now, this is, you have, this is the head, Mike, of public health medicine for the BMA, and what the statement here is not correct. Mm. It's not really, this doesn't add up or measure up to any of the uh, other uh, experts in the field internationally, what they're saying here. And so it, it doesn't measure up to the current situation in London at all, mm -hmm. because we're at the end, of, we're, we're already out of, of the uh, epidemic, as it were. And a lot of other uh, academics and scientists are already saying this and admitting it, but for some reason our institutions are saying a different story. And if we, here's one institution based in Oxford. This is the Center for uh, Evidence-Based Medicine. And they're saying, with regards to the children, the risks of COVID transmission in children are low. Uh, children's education and their well-being is and should be a priority. Prolonged lockdown of schools penalizes the entire global cohort of students. So it incentivizes excessive reliance on electronic means of communication and a sedentary lifestyle. This is in Oxford. This is not in another country. So within Britain, there's this huge difference of what the government uh, uh, institutions are saying and then what academic institutions are saying. Mm. And so they cl they're clearly not referencing each other. So it seems to me, Mike, that the government and any institutions attached to government have, have doubled down on their initial narrative and they're kicking and screaming uh, to to not let go of this original path that they, they, they put themselves on. And it, it doesn't make any sense to do this um, in the face of new data information of real science. So where is the science? I thought we were being guided by the science. So what Matt Hancock tells us every week. This is what Boris Johnson says every week. This is what Michael Gove says. We're being guided by the science. Which science are you being guided by? That's the question. Uh, yes, I don't think any science is the answer, but science fiction. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, but I mean, uh, your point's right. This is being driven by the unions and the people that I'm speaking to in the in the teaching profession. Uh, they're being given the guidelines by the government. They're being expected to implement those guidelines. Uh, there is quite a bit of fear amongst some teachers in the UK driven by the unions because that's where they're getting their and the media but but you know they trust the unions and and the, the unions have for whatever reason we've discussed that on previous programs uh, decided that they've got to keep pushing for continuation of the lockdown no the bma the british medical association has backpedaled slightly since last week they've backpedaled a little bit mm -hmm. on their initial support of teachers saying that you know that they don't be over focused on the fear um, and to maybe we, we need to look at the science, basically. So they have pulled back a little bit on where they were last week. So there is some progress being made towards, it uh, looks like, towards common sense and, and real data. Um, so, uh, Patrick, the question is, when did uh, COVID-19 and coronavirus uh, first appear? Uh, and it looks like uh, France suggesting earlier than we've been told. That's right. So we, we saw a story that came out a few weeks ago that shocked a lot of people about uh, cases in France being spotted at the end of December. So this would really put it before the initial timeline, both for China and for Europe and the West. And so this story came out in Le Figaro, and France is basically saying they're pushing that possibly back till mid-November, traces of coronavirus detected. And they're doing a, a review of, of x-rays and scans, CT scans over the last uh, couple of months uh, into 2019. This is what they've found. Radiologists have found uh, what they consider to be direct matches for COVID-19 uh, in patients during that period. And so what they're saying initially was that, uh, what if the coronavirus had appeared in France much earlier than we imagine? Several recent studies tend to confirm this. At the beginning of May, doctors in Bondi had a, found a case of contamination dating back to December 27th, uh, 2019, thanks to a reanalysis of samples. So that would predate the Chinese announcements um, on, on the 31st of December. Mm -hmm. so, so, and they go on and they break it into three categories here. This is how they're filing their results. A, not suggestive of COVID. B, 
compatible with COVID and see typical of COVID. Mm -hmm. So this is important to note here. This isn't an exact discovery here. Um, they are also using um, uh, analysis, Mike. Mm -hmm. So it's not it's not exactly blood tests and so forth on this side. So it's inconclusive, uh, basically. So there's there's a lot more work that needs to be done uh, on this to to be more conclusive. But it seems there are clues, at least with the French studies, that COVID was within the population much much earlier uh, than February. Mm. Um, uh, well, let's move back to the United States then. And uh, well, Donald Trump, he can't do no right at the moment. Is he wearing a mask or is he not wearing a mask? Well, he's uh, he says he wasn't going to cave into the mask thing, but someone caught a snapshot of Donald Trump. This is during a, a tour of the Ford plant uh, in the United States here, but apparently he's caved to pressure. At least he didn't intend to be spotted, but this was uh, released on NBC News. And this is the Donald. Here's a close-up of the mask. As you can see, it's got the presidential seal on it. Uh, that will fetch a, uh, a, a few quid on eBay, I uh -huh. think, uh, to get your hands on one of those. But it's probably made in China anyway, so that's neither here nor there. But um, So, so the, there's a lot of debate, Mike, about the effectiveness of masks. A lot of studies are coming out now saying that uh, the masks aren't terribly effective and, in, in fact, can be harmful mm -hmm. uh, to people wearing them for long periods of time. There's already a huge amount of complaints from service workers who are passing out on shift uh, because they're breathing in CO2 all day. There's a lot of complaints about this. There's a lot of stuff in the press right now. We might cover that in the future. Mm -hmm. But it looks like the whole, it's a bit ridiculous that everyone just started wearing masks in the last couple of weeks, really, in the United States, when, in fact, the statistics show it's a fact that infections had peaked before lockdown mm -hmm. in mid-March. Same in the UK and the United States. So th there's less of a mask obsession in the UK, I think, in Europe. But in the United States, it's become kind of a, a fashion statement. In fact, it's become a partisan fashion statement. Yes. Democrats wear masks, Republicans don't, but uh, or con you know, conservatives don't, or far-right don't. There's all sorts of characterizations with, yeah. with politics. So. Yes. Okay. And let's uh, let's move on then to uh, pro-lockdown propaganda. Well, well, t pursuing that partisan uh, situation. This is in the Atlantic, and look at the headline on this: Georgia's experiment in human sacrifice. Is it any wonder the mainstream media is collapsing in a heap? So the state is about to find out how many people need to lose their lives to shore up the economy. So this sort of stuff gets a lot of play, as it were, with the Democrat readers. Uh, with the liberal readers. And so again, but it flies in the face of the real trajectory of the epidemic, which yeah. is already over, yeah. basically. So they're basically making the argument that it's economy versus lives, that you're risking lives by opening up the economy. And that's ridiculous if you know that there's no risk to getting COVID uh, in, in the workplace or outdoors. And not only that, that all of the people um, below a certain age, Mike, and who don't live in nursing homes are, are really not going to have any high risk at all of mm -hmm. uh, being hospitalized for COVID-19. Yeah. <laughs> but still, these, this narrative dominates. And so where does it take us? It takes us here. Uh, it takes us to this story. Washington State, residents who refuse a COVID test are to be placed under house arrest. This is Governor Jay Inslee. He made this comment during a recent interview. So they're wanting to roll out a massive contact tracing and testing program in Washington State. This is one of the original hotspots of the crisis, Mike. So what does this mean? Here's Governor Inslee here with his various pie charts and diagrams. And basically he's saying that uh, if you refuse the test, you can't leave the house. And then he'll assign a government-named person to be your guardian to get your groceries from the store, you yourself will not be able to leave the house. So you'll be placed under house arrest, according to Jay Inslee, governor of Washington. Is that going to gain traction? Uh, I don't know. He's going to have some problems, I, I expect, Mike. Jay Inslee has got a little bit of a record here. This is a website here, We the Governed, and the coronavirus lawsuits against Governor Jay Inslee, the list. So there's a number of lists against Jay Inslee uh, of Perkins Coie law firm. Mm. Uh, so he probably himself has great lawyers, um, but he will also be challenged on the constitutionality of this. 
And what we're seeing, Mike, is that a lot of states, we talked about Wisconsin last week, they overruled uh, the state's health officials of being able to declare medical emergencies and have shutdowns of non-essential businesses. And so this is going to happen in all of the states, I think. Mm -hmm. So this, I think this potentially is going to backfire on some politicians, Mike. Mm -hmm. I, think, I think there was inertia initially with people supporting the lockdown and also based on partisan lines. But now as the, as it, the reality begins to set in, I, I, the, there's going to be a huge amount of, of tort and lawsuits as a result of this. And it's going to be massively damaging. Here's the game plan. So this is what Inslee is pushing out. This is kind of the uh, contact tracing. They're calling it box in the virus. Of course, this is completely useless because the, the virus has already well and truly made its way out of the population. This was uh, uh, Dr. Sunetra Gupta from Oxford University's, uh, she's a professor of theoretical epidemiology. She did an interview with Unheard recently, and basically she said that uh, the virus is on its way out. She's talking about the UK, and I think very much the same in the US. So if you look at this whole idea of mass testing and mass contract tracing, I mean, look at the, the amount of surveillance in this so-called box diagram, Mike, look at it. Confined if exposed, widely tested. You keep testing until you're negative and then you're allowed to be free again, but anybody within such and such you know, distance of you will have to quarantine and be tested as well. It's just a mess. I mean, mm. to do this for, as some of the uh, academics were saying, including Newt Wachowski, you know, to do this for STDs was difficult. Mm. And the point is, it's, it's pointless to do this contact tracing, mass testing contract tracing, after the virus is already gone. It's pointless unless they're doing it to ramp up as a permanent policy. Right. And so it, it's useful maybe at the beginning uh, when the uh, initial outbreak happens, if you do catch it early, maybe in Taiwan and South Korea they were fortunate enough to maybe catch it early enough, or Singapore, for instance. But you know, even then, uh, th that's not necessarily why the uh, fatality rates were so low. Why are the fatality rates so high in the U.S. and the U.K.? It's not really all because of the coronavirus. No, not That's the problem with the whole conversation. Uh, absolutely. And so here is, uh, this is a, another glimmer of hope here. Ohio judge has basically ruled that uh, the designation of non-essential businesses is arbitrary, unreasonable, and oppressive, and has basically reversed that decision, and a judge has ruled on that in Ohio. So this is happening in other countries as well, Mike. So... It's, uh, there's, you're going to see more and more pushback. I think within weeks, um, there's going to be just so much inertia that anybody who's remaining in any lockdown or major social distancing regimes going into June is going to be really on their back heels. Yes. Uh, and then uh, one of the other narratives that's been pushed and continues to be pushed at the moment is the question of whether the virus uh, stays on surfaces, whether this is the way that you're going to catch it. This was huge. You remember at the beginning of this crisis? This is one of the things that drove paranoia and actually drove the social distancing paradigm was the idea that the corona lives on surfaces and can, you can get infected by just touching anything. So this really drives the majority of the narrative. And so God spoke uh, just yesterday uh, or a couple of days ago, the CDC in the United States. This is the voice of God in America. And this is what God said. Uh, to USA Today. COVID-19 is a new disease as we are still learning about how it spreads, said the CDC's updated, updated guidelines. They're updating them constantly. And the new update says, well, this idea of the corona spreading on surfaces, we're not so sure about that. They're saying it may be possible for COVID-19 to spread in other ways, but these are not thought to be the main ways the virus spreads. They're talking about on surfaces, Mike. Okay. So they go on here and said the CDC said that catching the coronavirus from boxes delivered by Amazon or your takeout food bag is highly unlikely because of poor survivability of these coronaviruses on surfaces. This is the diametric opposite of what we were told just two months ago. Okay, so this is driving the whole uh, effort towards don't touch anything and also contactless payments. Remember this story. This got huge amount of traction initially. Dirty banknotes may be spreading coronavirus, World Health Organization suggests. So this came all the way down from the WHO. And what, what's the bottom line here? Cash is dangerous. So this, this whole idea effectively was propaganda. 
to drive society towards a cashless model. Mm -hmm. And that cashless model you can see in the World Economic Forum, uh, it fits very nicely into their COVID action plan. And, for, their, and their fourth industrial revolution yeah, plan as well. The new normal. So the new normal is, is cash is dangerous, mm -hmm. cash is dirty, we need to get rid of cash. So it's preposterous. In fact, if, if people need to look at this and absolutely reject, reject the idea of this idea that cash is dangerous and that this is the new normal. And there's a lot of businesses that are saying, that, well, we're, we're, we're really looking out for our customers' safety by not taking cash, okay? That is absolutely ridiculous. Mm. But yet, that got so much traction and it's become policy for a lot of retailers. Uh, absolutely. Uh, so where does that take us? Well, um, this, was, this was sort of backed up here, Mike, by uh, WebMD. This is their chief medical officer, and this is what he's saying. Many people are concerned simply by touching an object that they may get coronavirus, and that's simply not the case. So even when the virus may stay on the surface, it doesn't mean it's actually infectious. And he continues. He says, I think the new guidelines help people understand more what does and doesn't increase risk. It doesn't mean that we stop washing our hands, of course, and disinfecting surfaces, but it does allow us to be practical and realistic as we try to return to some sense of normalcy. So he's talking about the old normal, not the new normal. Yes. Okay, so this is the chief medical officer of WebMD. And just finally, he says, I think the new, uh, new guidelines talking about risk. So, and then, so there's a repeat slide. Sorry about that. Oh, okay. So, yeah. so okay. So that, that uh, sums that up. Uh, basically, where does that leave us, though? Surfaces not as dangerous as we're told. No. So we don't have, obviously, we're not wearing rubber gloves um, on air. Yeah. So, but uh, so some presenters do wear masks and rubber gloves on the air. We don't uh, because it's actually we're f we're just reading what the CDC is saying. They're saying it's not dangerous. Uh, absolutely. So, okay, we've got some other topics to move on to now. But uh, if you like what the UK Column does and you would like to support us, then please head over to ukcolumn.org/community. There are options to help us out there, and your support much needed and much appreciated. Now. Uh, David Noakes, uh, the uh, person who set up, uh, helped so many people with cancer through GCMAF, uh, has, was arrested uh, on Wednesday afternoon in Cornwall. Uh, he was taken to Exeter Prison, where he's been since. Uh, there was a court case held yesterday in Southwark Crown Court, uh, uh, sorry, this morning in Southwark Crown Court, um, and uh, it was at 10 a.m., uh, this was apparently to enable Judge Nicholas Lorraine Smith to read his ruling with respect to uh, uh, the seizing of David's assets under the Proceeds of Crime Act. Um, some people turned up uh, at that hearing to witness what happened. Uh, they were initially told that uh, there was no hearing at Southern Crown Court, that in fact it was, being at the, it was going to be held at the Old Bailey. So they went to the Old Bailey and discovered it wasn't being held at the Old Bailey. It was in fact being held at Southern Crown Court. Uh, they were then uh, went back to Southern Crown Court, were denied access to the hearing, uh, and uh, so that hearing took place effectively in secret. We don't know what uh, what the result of that was. Uh, there was a parallel hearing then uh, for David in in Magistrates Court to decide whether he was going to be released from Exeter Prison or whether he was going to be staying in. It seems like uh, he will be in for quite some time now, uh, on the basis uh, that he breached his bail. Uh, provisions, so so that's uh, that's unfortunate. It's probably better that he's in Exeter than in the the London prison. I can't remember which prison it was in. He was in before in London. Uh, Exeter, better prison. Uh, if he has to be in prison at all, which is pretty unfortunate. But of course, why is he in prison? Because he's about to be extradited to France to uh, effectively go through a double jeopardy trial um, because uh, he's already served time for the uh, alleged breaking of the law that he did. Uh, it's absolutely debatable whether he did break any law. Uh, many people, including us, would argue that he didn't. He, in fact, uh, uh, was uh, doing a lot of good in what he did uh, and, pursue, and, and pursuing a lot of scientific proper, scientific research on the efficacy of GCMAF uh, for the treatment of several diseases, including cancer. So, uh, as I say, he is in prison. Uh, we will see. We'll keep everybody informed as... as uh, as we find out what, what happens with him, uh, and he'll be in Exeter for, for the, the uh, medium term at least. Uh, we do have a prison number for, for him. We will tweet that out and we'll make that available 
in the in the notes for the uh, for the video on YouTube and also on the UK column website if anybody wants to write to him. Um, now on uh, Wednesday uh, we were highlighting this situation with Tobias Elwood, uh, the fact that he is uh, head of the uh, Defence Select Committee uh, and as head of the, the chairman of the Defence Select Committee uh, is there to provide to hold to account the Ministry of Defence, the British military, uh, including 77th Brigade. Uh, and we were making the point that uh, unfortunately Tobias Elwood, of course, is still a reservist with 77th Brigade, a lieutenant colonel in 77th Brigade. And we were asking, was this not a massive conflict of interest? Well, actually, quite a number of people have uh, taken up that uh, that question and are asking that on many different platforms. Uh, and we were contacted then by someone very close to senior military uh, who has said that some very senior military are asking the same question. They're getting extremely concerned about this. Um, uh, but they're also uh, asking the question of, you were talking about the videos being taken down off YouTube uh, recently quite a lot of videos being taken down from YouTube and they're just asking the question, uh, senior British military, serving military, asking the question, how much 77th Brigade influence was there on YouTube to, to actually identify which videos needed to be taken down? They're asking these questions. I think we need to be asking these questions as well, Patrick. Because they are using external advisors, Mike, like the Atlantic Council, the DFR labs. Um, they are... Um, uh, advising Facebook, advising Twitter, and they're on all these fake news and fact-checking committees. So the whole fact-checking thing is completely corrupt. Yes. And so you have a lot of these parties. And if you have a government um, agency as well involved in that, that's even more disturbing. Uh, absolutely. Uh, now, uh, Boris Johnson doubling down this morning on the uh, two-meter thing, which, of course, there, there appears to be no scientific evidence to back up at all. The World Health Organization says one meter, by the way. Right. Three feet and one, or three meters, yeah. No, three, three, feet, three, three feet, feet, one yeah. meter. Three feet, one meter, yeah. So when outdoors, keep two meters apart, says Boris Johnson. He's put a signature on there. That's really impressive. Uh, well, one person who wasn't uh, social distancing over the last couple of days was Nigel Farage, and he has been getting a significant amount of criticism in the press for, for doing that. Now, of course, uh, he uh, condemned here by the Independent for a boat trip into the English Channel to report the migrant invasion. Now, this is uh, because basically, the, the, of course, the Immigration Act or the Immigration Bill is going through Parliament. So he's highlighting this issue and actually doing a pretty good job of it, Patrick. But uh, one area that, that he didn't mention, and I just want to highlight, but we'll watch, we'll watch a little bit of the video that he, uh, that he pushed out on his Twitter feed uh, yesterday. So here we are, middle of the English Channel. We're right on the edge of British and French territorial waters. What we know is that a French naval vessel has been seen escorting boats out of French waters to get them into British waters, then they're off their hands. So the big French naval vessel now has gone. They've done their job. They've brought escorted that little dinghy on the left there into British waters. They've now left their own rib off the big vessel just to make sure they're safe until the handover to the border force. They're even trying to prevent us filming it with the French naval vessel trying to get in the way of the handover. So the first thing to say there, Patrick, is, is the criticism in the mainstream press. Uh, I think there's a bit of jealousy in that. I mean, basically, he's done what a journalist should do. He's gone out and he's he's actually gone to find out for himself what's going on. Where, where was the independent? Well, he was doing this sitting on the on the shore with their binoculars or something. Who knows? But you know, all the press were with the long lenses scrambling around on the beach waiting for the uh, the money shot, which is the migrants coming onto the beach, the beachhead. But Nigel went and did what a, a real journalist should have done, which is hire a fishing boat, go out there and see how this thing is, is taking place between the two countries. It's incredible. So thumbs up to Nigel Farage. He might have a future as a top journalist. He's uh, certainly doing more than Piers Morgan. Well, absolutely. Now, he's making the point, of course, that the, what appears to be happening is that the French Navy handing off uh, migrants from French waters to the UK, the British Navy in, uh, in British waters. Uh, that appears to be what's going on. And the question is, how is this happening? Um, well, of course, the, the Franco-British relationship really kicked off in 2010 with the Lancaster House Treaties when David Cameron brought us into a 50-year defence pact with the French. 
but the immigration aspect of this came from the second round of Franco-British uh, treaties, uh, and so, which took the, the meeting took place, the summit took place in Sandhurst in January 2018. Uh, we covered it extensively at the time. And this was where the uh, immigration agreements uh, really were written up. And of course, the, the argument for this was that uh, Britain and France needed to get together to deal with the, uh, the, the Calais jungle at the time, that camp at Calais. Uh, and we needed to, to, to pull together some uh, joint effort to sort that problem out. This is the basis of what Nigel Farage uh, saw yesterday. But this is also the basis of Britain and France's drive towards European Defence Union. This is something we've been pushing very hard over the last couple of years. Uh, people need to, to understand that aspect of it. Um, and uh, then finally, uh, Patrick, I just wanted to, to mention this because on Wednesday's programme we were talking about uh, Iran sending uh, fuel shipments, oil shipments to Venezuela, uh, the, the fact that the US was threatening Iran, uh, they were threatening to seize these, these boats, Iran suggesting that the US, if they did seize the boats, uh, the ships uh, would be committing piracy. But of course, the reason that the United States is getting so upset about Iran sending oil to Venezuela is because there are sanctions in place. Um, well, Venezuela, um, Britain uh, absolutely supporting the United States on these sanctions and Venezuela not very happy about it. So it's perhaps unsurprising uh, that at the United Nations uh, a day or so ago, uh, Samuel uh, Moncada, Moncada, the uh, Venezuelan representative to the United Nations, is saying uh, he's really upset about the fact that the, that the, the Venezuela is attempting to sell some of the gold that is held uh, in vaults at the Bank of England because they want to raise money to, do, to, to help with their coronavirus uh, efforts. Uh, and so the Bank of England has said that they will not sell the gold on Venezuela's behalf because of these sanctions imposed by the United States. So uh, Samuel Moncada here saying it's not the first time that the Bank of England has acted as a looting agent against the people. Uh, now it violates contracts and swindles nations taking advantage of the pandemic, a crime against humanity. Uh, well, it gets better uh, because here is uh, the British acting deputy permanent representative to the United Nations, James Roscoe, uh, because at the uh, a couple of days ago uh, in the UN Security Council, there were uh, holding an event about how to uh, lead Venezuela towards democracy. Uh, and this was Britain's position, Patrick, and I just wanted to put this on screen because it is such utter hypocrisy. Uh, we call on the Maduro to constructively engage in dialogue as soon as possible so that the Venezuelan people can move forward in freedom and democracy. <laughs> Patrick, how much freedom and democracy are we witnessing in this country at this time? And yet this man sits in the Security Council and makes a statement like that. It is incredible. Is Elliot Abrams writing your uh, speeches for the uh, British diplomats? It looks like it's coming straight from the U.S. State Department. Uh, absolutely. Yeah, amazing. Yeah. Amazing. Okay, we've got to leave it there for today. Thank you very much for joining me. Uh, thank you for joining us. Uh, we'll be back as usual at the same time, one o'clock on Monday. Have a great weekend and we'll see you then. Bye-bye.